Turn with me this evening to the book of Jonah, the Old Testament scriptures, minor prophets. We'll look this evening at the book of Jonah. Again, those of you worshiping with us online, grateful for you as well. There was a lot of folks watching online this morning, commenting, and uh, perhaps Carol you're watching, or David, love you guys, and praying for you, and thankful for the opportunities God's given us in these ongoing days. Now, as we come to the book of Jonah tonight, we've been going through the minor prophets in an overview or survey fashion, looking at each book for its main message and how uh, the chapters develop the big idea of the book. Jonah is the next book that we come to. Now, we have studied Jonah as a church before a little more in depth. I want to return to some of those studies this evening. It's been a while, so probably not super fresh on our minds, but we'll look at each chapter of Jonah during these Sunday night, uh, upcoming Sunday nights, and then tie them into the larger study we've been doing. What do these prophets show us about God? What do these Old Testament books teach us? So we come then to Jonah chapter 1 this evening, and let me read verses 1 through 16. Let us hear the word of the Lord. The word of the Lord came to Jonah, the son of Amittai. Go to the great city of Nineveh and preach against it, because its wickedness has come up before me. But Jonah ran away from the Lord and headed for Tarshish. He went down to Joppa, where he found a ship bound for that port. After paying the fare, he went aboard and sailed for Tarshish to flee from the Lord. Then the Lord sent a great wind on the sea, and such a violent storm arose that the ship threatened to break up. All the sailors were afraid, and each cried out to his own God, and they threw the cargo into the sea to lighten the ship. But Jonah had gone below deck, where he lay down and fell into a deep sleep. The captain went to him and said, How can you sleep? Get up and call on your God. Maybe he will take notice of us so that we will not perish. Then the sailors said to each other, Come, let us cast lots to find out who is responsible for this calamity. They cast lots, and the lot fell on Jonah. So they asked him, Tell us, who is responsible for making all this trouble for us? What kind of work do you do? Where do you come from? What is your country? From what people are you? He answered, I am a Hebrew, and I worship the Lord, the God of heaven, who made the sea and the dry land. This terrified them, and they asked, What have you done? They knew he was running away from the Lord because he had already told them so. The sea was getting rougher and rougher. So they asked him, what should we do for you to make to you to make the sea calm down for us? Pick me up and throw me into the sea, he replied, and it will become calm. I know that it is my fault that this great storm has come upon you. Instead, the men did their best to row back to land, but they could not, for the sea grew even wilder than before. Then they cried out to the Lord, Please, Lord, do not let us die for taking this man's life. Do not hold us accountable for killing an innocent man. For you, Lord, have done as you pleased. Then they took Jonah and threw him overboard, and the raging sea grew calm. At this the men greatly feared the Lord, and they offered a sacrifice to the Lord and made vows to him. Amen. Let me pray for us again, Lord. In your mercy, teach us your word. Please fill me with your spirit. May Christ be set before our eyes. May we behold him with the eyes of faith and worship and love him. Bless our church and those in need and remember and take care of them. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Now 
Now let me say two things as we prepare to look at this chapter and as we begin this book of Jonah. First, Jonah differs from other prophets in that it tells the story of a prophet rather than reporting his words. Now Jonah's words are here, but you think of when you open an Isaiah or a Jeremiah, it's almost entirely what they are saying, what they are preaching, what they have recorded. Whereas the book of Jonah is more of a story. There's more focus on his actions and particularly on his attitudes, the attitudes that are behind his words. And not only is there a focus on his actions and attitudes, but this is a prophet whom we tend to view negatively. In other words, you think of Isaiah and the other prophets as great heroes, men like Elijah who boldly took a stand for God. But we look at Jonah somewhat suspiciously, and we do so because the book wants us to. He's cast in this somewhat negative light in order to bring out the theme and the message of the book. In fact, the whole book is going to be filled with surprising reversals, characters who act or say things that are the very opposite of what we would expect them to do. Second, then, the thing to know before we get into the text is that the main message of this book is not what it is always portrayed as. In other words, it's common to hear Jonah preached as being about obedience. So the prophet was called to share the gospel. He did not, and God chastised him. You are called to share the gospel, and if you do not, you risk God's uh, displeasure and correction. Now, I don't want to minimize, by the way, any of those themes. But if you look at the book of Jonah, Jonah's disobedience is really only one part of the book. After the first chapter, his disobedience is not the main factor in his story. He runs, as we read tonight. But beginning at chapter 2 and into the rest of the book, Jonah actually does what God tells him to do. Again, reinforcing the focus on his attitude. And also, why did he disobey in the first place? That's where the book is going to focus a lot of his attention. And I'll tell you this too. Why did he disobey? It had nothing to do with being afraid of being a missionary. He wasn't afraid to go to this foreign land. He wasn't living a comfortable life of ease and God needed to shake him out of it. No, his resistance in going to Nineveh was much deeper and much darker than any of those motives that we may struggle with in our own context. So what then is the main message of this book? What's it about? Really, in a word? It is about grace, God's unmerited grace towards those who have sinned against him. And that's fitting, because we looked at God's grace this morning in Titus chapter 2. Well, we're returning to that theme again this evening as we look at, we begin to look at the book of Jonah. In this book, we encounter the God who is gracious to all. So let's begin and see how that theme emerges here in the first chapter. Now the opening verses, they set the background to Jonah's story. The word of the Lord, verses 1 and 2, came to Jonah, son of Amittai, go to the great city of Nineveh and preach against it, because its wickedness has come up before me. 
Now, one of the nice things about Jonah the prophet, he's actually referred to in another book of the Bible, 2 Kings chapter 14. Some of these prophets, we just don't even know where they come from. Jonah is actually referred to in 2 Kings 14. He prophesies during the reign of Jeroboam II, who is one of the most wicked kings to govern the northern kingdom of Israel. Now, this places him around the same time as Amos and Hosea. They were contemporaries. Maybe they even knew one another. They ministered during the same time period. And again, how do the scriptures describe Jeroboam the two? Uh, Jeroboam two. He did evil in the eyes of the Lord. Now, despite that, however, the fact that he was wicked, that he, he deserved God's displeasure and punishment, he was one of Israel's longest reigning and most successful kings. And God just does that to show us that he's God. You know, he says, if you disobey me, you will die. I will withdraw my blessing from the nation of Israel. Here comes Jeroboam II. He lives one of the, he has one of the longest reigns. He has one of the most successful kingdoms. The land had shrunk following the time of David and Solomon. And Jeroboam II was able to push back the boundaries, getting really close uh, to the size of the kingdom during the previous empire. And when he did, by the way, when he was successful militarily, he did this according to 2 Kings 14.25, in accordance with the word of the Lord, the God of Israel, spoken through his servant Jonah, son of Amittai, the prophet from Gath-Hepham. So here was Jonah, a northern prophet, who prophesied during one of Israel's most wicked kings, and yet God's message was, you tell the king, he is going to be successful. So this king successfully expanded Israel's borders. And he was able to do another thing that is important for the book of Jonah. Jeroboam was able to shake off years of paying tribute to the Assyrian Empire. They're not so friendly neighbor to the north. This uh, empire had harassed them, had invaded them, had exacted tribute upon them, and they would uh, go through a later military rebound. But during the time of Jeroboam, during the time of Jonah, they were actually somewhat weaker than they had been in previous years. And by the way, can you guess one of the name, the name of one of Assyria's most powerful cities? You got it. Nineveh, where God calls Jonah to go. So I give you all that to give you an idea of what might have been going through Jonah's mind when the word of the Lord came to him and said, Go to the great city of Nineveh and preach against it. Well, well years of resentment may have come bubbling up in Jonah's heart. I mean, this was an empire that operated through military intimidation. In one inscription, one of the Assyrian rulers, he calls himself the destructive weapon of the great gods. One author writes, the success of the Assyrian empire rested on their brutal military campaigns. The ancient world's version of ISIS, but organized into a large, dominant world empire. From a divine perspective, they were wicked. They deserved to die. They deserved for their empire to come to nothing, for their inhabitants to waste away. And that is the people that God tells Jonah to go to and preach. 
In fact, look at that commission again in verse 2. Go to the great city of Nineveh and preach against it, because its wickedness has come up before me. Jonah is to go and announce judgment against the city of Nineveh. Why? Because its wickedness has come up before the Lord. One translation reads, their wickedness has come to my attention. It's like the wickedness of Sodom and Gomorrah. It just comes up in God's nostrils and it's a stench to him. He's fully aware of the evil of the Ninevites. Now this may make us wonder, though, okay, well, wait a minute. You'd think Jonah would love that job. He's to go and tell his enemies judgment is coming. I mean, here he's been living in Israel, wicked king, they should have been judged, and yet God mercifully gives them military success. And now not only that, but God's going to judge this harassing neighbor. You would think Jonah would jump at the opportunity to go preach that to Nineveh. So again, why would Jonah not do that? And in fact, in verse 3, it almost sounds like Jonah is going to do that. One author translates verse 3 like this. Jonah did go off in the direction of Tarshish. So Jonah arose. God said, get up and go. Well, Jonah got up, but then he went in the opposite direction. He went towards Tarshish. But that was, in his day, the furthest point west that was known. Basically, get me as far away from Nineveh as you possibly can. They wouldn't know about Jonah's God there in Tarsha, so he can just go, in his mind, escape from God's commission. But that brings me back to the question I just raised. Well, why did he run? Why wouldn't he want to tell the Ninevites that they're doomed? And that is because Jonah knew a theological truth that every prophet should know. And it's expressed well in Jeremiah 18. In fact, I'd argue the prophets did know this. This is part of their theology that they understood from the law of God. But Jeremiah 18 reads like this. If at any time I announce that a nation or kingdom is going to be uprooted, torn down, and destroyed, and if that nation, I warned, repents of its evil, then I will relent and not inflict the disaster I had planned. So God tells Jonah to go and warn the Ninevites of judgment. But the prophet knows from reading his Bible and from living in Israel, where they're already enjoying God's undeserved mercy, that the announcement of judgment has as its end the aim of producing repentance. Repentance that will lead to salvation. And Jonah knew that from his Bible, and if there was any doubt, you can check it later. Jonah chapter 4, verses 2 and 3, confirm. Jonah says, I knew if I went that you would show mercy, and that the people would repent, and that you would save them. And that is the message. He does not want them to hear. And so he flees. So how does Jonah try to escape God's presence? It's a foolish venture. But how does he try? Well, as we said, as the text says, we know this part of the story probably well. He goes to Joppa. He boards a ship headed for Tarshish, according to verse 5. He also goes down below deck and falls into a deep sleep. There's a very downward movement of Jonah from the moment he begins to disobey. But while he's sound asleep, God shows up. 
He sends a great wind on the sea, and a violent storm comes upon the people, so violent it threatens to break up the ship. And the sailors respond like many people do when they're about to die. They pray. Now, these sailors, they, they weren't Jews, but they were religious. You don't find atheism as a dominant you know, philosophy of life in the ancient world. Everybody tended to have uh, their own God, so they all pray. They each pray to their own God. And they also begin to throw the cargo off the ship in order to lighten the load. And when the captain goes down below looking for more cargo, who should he find but a sleeping Jonah? And so he says, how can you sleep? Get up, call on your God. And by the way, it's interesting. The captain uses the same verbs that God did in verse 2 when he commissioned Jonah to get up and announce judgment to Nineveh. Now this pagan comes downstairs and says, get up and call on your God. And the author's written it that way to, to make us see the connection. And Jonah probably heard those words and they were a very stinging reminder of his own disobedience. So back on deck, the sailors are realizing that things, things are not improving, so they decide, we'll cast lots. We'll determine whose fault the storm is, and the lot falls to Jonah. And so they begin to pepper him with questions. Who are you? Where are you from? Who is responsible for this? They may not even immediately realize he's responsible. They, they just realize he's the one who can explain to them that the gods have chosen this one to reveal who is responsible for their plight. But as Jonah begins to answer, his guilt becomes evident. He says, I am a Hebrew, and I worship the Lord, verse 9, the God of heaven who made the sea and the dry land, and I, verse 10, am running from God. Now, think about this confession for a minute. Think about the irony of what Jonah is saying, maybe now he's just finally coming to his senses, but he says, I'm a Hebrew. I worship the Lord, that's Yahweh, the one true and living God. Really? Well, if you worship him, why don't you obey him? Why are you running away from him? Jonah says, my God made the sea and the dry land. Okay, well, if he made the sea, why did you try to run from him on a boat? Doesn't seem like a very smart thing to do since he created the sea. And maybe just maybe at this point there's a little bit of pride in Jonah's answer. With his back against the wall, he's like, hey, I'm a Hebrew. I worship the one God, not like you pagans. But that's where the book begins to surprise us with how the situations reverse. Jonah may have an orthodox profession. He may claim to fear God. But his disobedience shows us that he does not. The pagans, on the, the other hand, they may not know God. They may not know their theology. They may be dead wrong in those things. But as we'll see in just a moment, their response to God's truth is going to be much better than Jonah's. So God really levels the playing field here even more. He really reverses the situation of the main characters. So that brings us lastly to the sailor's response. When they hear Jonah's profession, they're more afraid than before. They try to row to safety, but the sea gets rougher and rougher. So they ask Jonah another question. What should we do to you to make the sea calm down for us? And Jonah tells them, pick me up and throw me into the sea and it will become calm. Now, 
That looks noble, doesn't it? All right, Jonah, finally, he's going to fall on his own sword. He realizes what he's caused these sailors. You know what? It may be that Jonah would rather die in the ocean than see Nineveh repent. And if God is going to chase him, then he will just throw himself into the sea and let God deal with that however he thinks is fit. He shows no concern for the Ninevites just as he showed no initial concern for these sailors by boarding their boat when running from the Lord. The sailors, however, they try to resist the request. Again, stunning reversals. But they finally acquiesce, and before they pitch Jonah into the sea, they pray, please, Lord, do not let us die for taking this man's life. Do not hold us accountable for killing an innocent man. For you, Lord, Yahweh, has done as you please. Basically, they recognize that God is the sovereign judge. And notice their prayer doesn't even focus on, okay, we're going to get rid of this guy, now get us out of this mess. No, their prayer focuses on, okay, well, we're going to kill an innocent man, so please, Lord, be merciful. Don't hold us accountable for this action we are taking. Give us mercy and grace. And when Jonah hits the water, the sea grows calm. So what can we conclude from this first chapter? Three observations for us to try to obey. One, you cannot run from the judgment of God. Now I said earlier, the ultimate message of Jonah isn't obedience, but we'd be irresponsible to ignore that Jonah disobeyed and God came after him. You cannot run. From the judgment of God. God called Jonah to preach to Nineveh because their wickedness came up before him. And when you read the Old Testament, you know, there's so much focus on Israel. You might be tempted to forget about the other nations out there. But just as God knows about the sin in Israel, he knows about the sin of Nineveh. And my point there is there is no nation, no city, no person on the face of this earth that can escape God's judgment. He knows our sins, and we all deserve judgment for every one of them. And when Jonah then, in the face of mercy, mercy for sin, having enjoyed mercy himself and giving the opportunity to share mercy with others, when that opportunity came, he ran, and that invited judgment on himself. And again, maybe he thought he was safe there in the boat, but God sent the storm and woke him up. Despite the fact that Jonah had a right profession, he was from the right heritage, he was in the wrong before God. And he could not escape. So that brings us to the second idea, which is God pursues us in love and mercy. Despite Nineveh's great sins, and despite Jonah's sins, as we'll see in the next chapter, we know what happens to Jonah. He doesn't die there in the water. Despite his great wickedness, and despite our great wickedness, God loves. God delights in showing mercy and forgiveness to sinners and pursuing them and turning them around. And, and think about the sinners here that God loved. They were oppressive, violent, undeserving, cruel sinners. And that's the people where God said, Jonah, go and tell them and warn them of this judgment lest they come into condemnation. And when the messenger said, no thanks, I'm not pursuing that message. Well, then God sent a storm to pursue him 
and to persuade them. And it was an act of judgment, and yet it was also God's mercy. God sent a storm to stop him from escaping, to save him from himself. And when he was thrown in the water, as we just said, God sent a fish to keep him from drowning. So I would say, I would warn us, we can't escape from God. But you know what? We don't want to escape from God. It's part of us that wants to escape, right? But we need to learn that's not the right way. We need to know better than that. The Lord, the God of heaven who made the sea and the dry land, determined that that lot would fall to Jonah, was pursuing him in mercy. So we run, when we run, God pursues us. And is God pursuing you? Is there any area of your life where maybe he sent trouble or maybe he hasn't, but it's evident God is pursuing you. It's good to surrender to that pursuit. And so lastly, and this is where we tie into the message of Jonah as a whole, the beauty of God's mercy and grace is that God will save whomever he wants to save. And nothing will stop God from doing it. God wanted to save the Ninevites. And so he sent Jonah to go and tell them. Jonah didn't want to go, and yet God turned him around where he did go. Jonah showed no concern for the sailors. But the chapter ends with this statement. The men greatly feared the Lord. And they offered a sacrifice to the Lord and made vows to him. So the book ends with a group of pagans who maybe when they got up this morning and never heard the name Yahweh, the God of Israel. But their day ends with them fearing the Lord, offering sacrifices, and making vows. And you know those are the activities that signal true conversion. And you think about it, it was a pretty poor witness that introduced them to the one true and living God. But God had purpose to save them. God had a purpose for Nineveh. God has commissioned us, as Dale preached to us a week ago, to take the gospel to the nations. And God, thankfully, by his sovereign authority, will pursue that because the gospel always wins. And that's something this book will show us over and over again. So let's pray and close this evening and thank God for his mercy. Father in heaven, we stand in awe again of your grace, that you are gracious towards us sinners, that the kindness of God, our Savior, the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation to all men. Thank you that your grace has pursued us and saved us, and that you love us, and that you will take care of your people. Meet their every need and hold us fast in your hand. Lord, forgive us of sins and pursue us where we are not growing or where we are carnal. Lord, help us to put sin to death. And would you in grace pursue us so that we may do so. And Lord, thank you that we have a part to play then in your commission to take the gospel to the nations. Help us to find our place in your story, to pursue it with all of our might. It could be a very simple purpose to pray and to work hard, to love our families or to study your word or to do what you've called us to do. Then may we do it with joy. I mean, may we know your grace and hell. I pray for the congregation here. If they go out tonight, they will go back to their homes or jobs. Another six days are before them to work and to do the things you've called them to do. Bless them. Keep them safe. And may they go forth in the name, power, and the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ. And we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.